Welcome to Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. Experience is the greatest yet most brutal teacher. If you can learn from life's lessons and apply it to your present actions, you can really make progress. The beauty about learning is that to do it right, you can actually use the experiences of others to illuminate your way forward and free yourself from the most onerous of life's lessons. That's where today's show fits in, what I wish I had known. We collected some of the best crit racers in the world, including Christina Goki smith Tina Pick, Cesar Gallego, and Tyler Reynolds, and asked them to help explore the lessons they've learned. We didn't script this one out. We simply followed the path that they laid out for us when we asked them to answer the question, what I wish I had known before my first big crit. The thing about advice is is that it's mostly a form of nostalgia. So there are clearly stories behind all of these points. And we share our versions of those stories here. Before we get into today's episode, I do want to tell you about the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Please head on over to WideAnglePodium.com to see everything we've got to offer, including Cyclocross Radio, hosted by longtime friend of the pod, Bill Scheichen. Bill recently crossed his 200th episode, and huge congrats to him on that. I am a massive fan of Cross and of his coverage. I do see so much overlap in the two disciplines, crits and cross, and it's great to see his guests like Curtis White do too. So please give his show a listen. And while you're there on the website, please do click on the donate button and help support this creator-owned network by giving to the shows and people you've come to trust for the Best in Cycling podcast. And speaking of clicking... Please do remember to like, share, and subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And if you really like what you hear, please leave us a review. It'll help others find out about the show, and we will absolutely love you for it. Up first, let's get into some of the news of the week. As you know, there is absolutely no way that I can do this by myself, so as always... And I love being able to say, as always, we've got Frank Kunda from Project Echelon here joining us. Frank, you're a lifelong Virginian, but have you ever gone out to Tanner Ridge in the Shenandoah? You know, I uh, I have not. It's one of those legendary climbs. And, and I ride a lot out there, but I tend to do the same routes when I go out there, which, you know, it's like the same three or four climbs. But obviously we're talking here about Sean the Gardener. Sean Gardner from CS Velo, who just set a new world record in Everesting. It was his second attempt for a record. The first time he came up just a few seconds short, set the new American record, sub seven hours. So congrats to him. You know, what do you think about these Everesting challenges? We're all bike racers, right? We all need something to train for. We all need you know, that, that goal, that target, right. Um, whether it is virtual racing, whether it's Everesting, whether it's these Rachel Langdon just rode across England and Scotland, I think, or something insane, like with her parents as her support crew. And, and so I think, um, I I think it's a good thing, you know, it it keeps, uh, everyone active, keeps their, 
keeps them going and, and waiting for the real race season to start. And to be honest, I'm actually surprised Sean Gardner has not already set this record by accident. The guy, you know, him and I were uh, teammates as cat twos and uh, we raced for him at Green Mountain Stage Race. He was like something like 90 seconds down going into the Queen Stage. We dumped him off at the base of the final climb. And at the end of the race, he was like two and a half minutes up on GC. Like the guy just shifts a gear and, and just motors away. It's it's impressive. If you've never done Green Mountain Stage Race, that climb comes at the end of like, it's like a 102 mile day or a 98 mile day or something like that with a Cat 1 climb at the 50 mile mark. It's a humbling day on the bike for anyone who thinks that someday they're going to be in the Tour de France or are going to be a pro bike racer at all. So speaking of pro bike racing, uh, within the last couple of days, USA Cycling has announced its PRT calendar for 2021. Of course, PRT stands for the Pro Road Tour. It comprises 15 events spanning from the beginning of the road season uh, in March all the way through the end in August, September. The whole idea of the PRT is something that I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know very much about. I knew it existed. I knew the lineage coming from NRC, so the National Race Calendar, or the NCC, the National Crit Calendar. But I don't really think I appreciated what the PRT is or has become. Like, for example, Frank, no looking at the internet right now, no Google. How many men's and women's teams compete in the PRT? All the American, like the Conti Pro teams for the men which, I mean, what is there, like three now, if that? <laughs> um, I'm going to say 10 men's teams and eight women's teams. It's a little bit bigger than that if you count all the continental men's teams and the continental women's teams. Obviously, the World Tour teams do not compete as a part of it. But also on the men's side and on the women's side, you have the U.S. domestic elite teams who participate in it. And I think that this is a a storytelling opportunity for, for us here. Because when you look at the line of events that, that compose this series, there are criteriums left and right in these. Gateway Cup, Bucks County. Uh, if you look at an event like um, the Joe Martin stage race, there's a crit buried within there. And I think that this is an opportunity for us to talk more in future episodes where we kind of break that down. And we look at who's eligible, what the rules are, where people go with this, because I, I feel like there's not been a very unified storytelling plan put forward by by anybody here. You know, and, and I might get my uh, head bit off a little bit for saying this. Racing for Project Echelon and working with Eric Hill for our Echelon Racing Promotions for our, our virtual league that we're launching, you know, the the selling point of that league, one of the big selling points is that the virtual races are virtual versions of real-life bike races. And, and the real-life bike races were versions of our PRT races. So I've been able to work with the race directors quite a bit in, in USA Cycling. And, and I think this comes back to real life in that one of the things that we've kind of discussed and one of the ulterior motives of the virtual league is that there, I don't think there's been a great relationship between the governing body and the race directors of the PRT. You know, I obviously, and we can talk to it more, the marketing for the PRT is probably not the best to take it lightly. We're hoping that 
by bringing everyone into a room. We do Zoom calls with USA Cycling and the real life race directors and, and getting everyone to chat. And, and, you know, we're really trying to rebuild that bridge. And, and I think some great stuff is coming from that. And, and I think that you'll see some great stuff coming out of the PRT in 2021 and beyond. Talk about Tour the Gila. That is a part of the Echelon Race League. So, yeah. So, you know, we've got for, for the Echelon Race League, you know, we've got Joe Martin Stage Race. We've got Redlands. We've got Tour of the Gila, Armed Forces, Gateway Cup, and Bucks County Classic, all part of the Race League for the virtual series, which is, you know, 60% of the real-life PRT, right? What we're doing is we're working with the race directors of those races in real life to highlight the the showcase stages of their races or the showcase parts of those stages, right? So obviously for Tour the Gila, we're not doing the entire Gila monster stage. No one wants to be on a trainer for five hours. No one wants to watch someone on a trainer for five hours. We're going to do some cropping of the stage and, and our road races will be about two hours long. You know, our riders will be going up a virtual version of the Gila monster. You know, for Joe Martin stage race, you know, that I don't know if anyone's ever done that time trial and I don't remember the name of it because I've only been out there once, but you come out of the, out of that little valley area and it's a hill climb, you know, we will be doing that prologue for the virtual series. Yeah. It's been, it's been really great. I mean, the real life race directors are ecstatic about the virtual series and, and, you know, this is the virtual series is another way to highlight these races and get people motivated for the spring and summer when these real life events occur. And part of what we're doing, you know, we're working with Brad Soner, who is the voice of most of these PRT races. During the virtual stages, we're going to be showing footage from, you know, the 2019 races uh, and, and, you know, where there were live streams available so that you could, hey, they are going up the Gila monster. Here's footage of Piccoli going up it and attacking and, and crushing it, who now races with, you know, Israeli startup. Really, the, the goal of this league, right, is to, during the offseason, when it's a black hole for road racing, to provide another venue to showcase our, our American races, our teams, our riders, their sponsors, just, just to keep everyone at the forefront of, of thoughts. So the only opportunity for these teams to, to showcase their, their stuff isn't, you know, an Instagram of someone saying, oh, new kids came in. Great. Let's go do a base miles ride. Are you telling me that base mile rides are not the most exciting and entertaining things? I will tell you, and she'll probably bite my head off for this again. We, I went out and did a workout getting ready for the virtual eSports Worlds Qualifier that's happening this Sunday. Mallory is not racing it, and she had to do a Zone 2 ride. And on our way back <laughs> into the city, she looked over at me at a stoplight and said, I think my personal hell is doing endurance rides all day, every day. They're the worst. I don't think that there's too many people who go out and do an endurance ride than just get sheer amounts of joy over the fact that they're doing an endurance ride. Just the act of doing it is kind of like therapeutic, especially for me. Like I've had multiple conversations about this. Why do you ride the same route basically every single day? Or why don't you deviate more from different routes? And for me, it's not always about where I go but it's really more about like the journey inside. And I don't want to get like way too deep early on in this show, but like the journey inside is more about just like that time that you get to process what the heck has happened to you during the first half of the day and what you're going to be doing in the second half of the day. 
So, you know, you get out there and you're just moving along and you forget what you did for the last 30 minutes. Like sometimes I have arrived at, you know, the coffee stop and I'm like, I have no idea what road I just took to get here. Yeah, no. And I will say this and, and I'll, we'll probably get some hate mail for this, Rob. I apologize. But I like using my base miles rides to catch up on my podcasts and audio. And I, I listened. I actually got some input, you know, when, when I was when I was really going hard and doing, you know, my four and five hour Saturdays and Sundays, every Saturday and Sunday. I didn't, I got tired of music. I didn't, I wanted something to listen to. And I asked, um, a local world tour rider, how do you buy the time when you're on your bike for five hours a day? And he told me audiobooks. And, and since then I've been sold on that. We've got a lot to cover here. Uh, we'll take a quick break and come right back to talk about what it's really like out there. My name's Clinton Mora. I started working with Zach Allison at Source Endurance in 2014. I had recently left corporate America after 20 years to become a stay-at-home dad. I had not trained as a serious athlete since my days running track and field and cross-country in college 30 years ago. Zach has helped me to reach heights in cycling that I could not have imagined for myself. I've seen improvements across the board in this time. I've gone from someone that would get dropped by the B group on the Saturday group ride to being able to force selections in the A race rides. A highlight of my racing career would have to be my 25th place overall finish and age group win at the Texas Chainring Massacre gravel race this past January, three days prior to my 50th birthday. My wife's career has taken us from Colorado to Texas and now to Alabama. There have been a lot of changes in my life since being Zach. However, Zach's support and expertise have remained a constant. Zach's guidance has given me the confidence to tackle big goals and the understanding of what it takes to accomplish them. Ready to join Clinton, Whitney Allison, and myself with Source Endurance? Head on over to source-e.net and enter the promo code CRITERIUMNATION, all one word, for $50 off your coaching and nutrition needs. One of the beauties of being an American high school student is that you are basically forced to take a foreign language. What was your foreign language when you went to school? The rule in Virginia is you have to take two years of two languages or three years of one language. And I opted for three years of one language because, in my opinion, that's easier. Bringing my inner nerd out, I took Latin. As did I. So there is yet again another odd example of how you and I are way too alike. We translated the a book by Julius Caesar during high school about the Gallic campaigns. It was all about how Rome conquered Gaul and how the famous French patriot Vercingetorix was outmaneuvered, outgunned, outmanned, outsmarted by Caesar and the legions. And it famously starts with the quote, Gallia est divisi partris tres. All of Gaul can be divided into three parts. The bike race or the criterium racing experience 
obviously can be divided into three parts. Coming to the race, so getting your butt to the start line, the race itself, and finishing the race. As we alluded to in the opening, we polled the entire field. We reached out to some of the best and brightest, some up-and-comers, some people who you may not have heard about before, but you'll definitely be hearing about in the near future, to talk to us about what it's really like in these USA crits, these PRT, these high-level national caliber races, and what are the things that they've learned or what are the things that they wish they would have known before they jumped into it? You know, so, Frank, I know that on our last episode that we did together for the whole thing, how it would have happened, we talked a little bit about how the typical Cat 1-2 local, even regional race is fundamentally different than the race that you go to do for Westchester or Boise or, you know, Winston-Salem. You know, if you look at those types of races, if you could boil it down to one thing about coming to the race, that very first prong, what is it that you think the listeners need to know about coming to a race and how it's just categorically different when you come and you line up at a race where you've got Frank Travieso in there. You've got Connor Saley. You've got the biggest and best guys or women who are lining up right next to you. All that, right? The lights, the fans, the barriers, the start finish line, the announcers, all of that, you know, for someone who's never done it before. And, and even the racers themselves, right? When you see, uh, Daniel Hobbleway and Trevieso and Tom Grennan and, and all these names that, you know, you've watched on the USA Crits live streams and you've read about in fellow news and it's intimidating. The best piece of advice I can give is confidence. If you don't think you belong there, you will not be there. You, you have to have an understanding with yourself that I'm strong enough to be here. I, I deserve to be here. And, and race like that. Um, if you race passively, if you hesitate because, oh, Stars and Stripes is next to me, what am I going to do? You're going to lose. You're going to lose that battle. You're, you've already lost that battle in your head. So, so I think it's just taking a deep breath and it's just another bike race. I was going to make one more comment, but I think we need to hear from Christina Goki smith from Team Colavita because she nails it on the head here. So let's, let's see what she has to say. If I could go back in time, I would tell myself, embrace challenge and don't be afraid to fail because that's where the opportunity lies. Be open to learning and step out of your comfort zone. And I would say, don't take it personal within your team or in the Peloton. I remember distinctly the first time that I went and did a Cat 1, 2, 3 race at Jefferson Cup. For those that don't know, Jefferson Cup is a legendary mid-Atlantic road race. It's like, an, I can't remember, it's like a 16-mile loop or something to that effect in Charlottesville or around Charlottesville. And it's a tough race. It ends a lot of times in a small group or with the whole thing getting shattered. And I walked around the elementary school where we do our staging, and I was looking around and I was like, I am way outside of my comfort zone. These are the really good guys. And I started to get myself a little too nervous and I started to think negatively. And then I was just like, wait, 
I've proven I belong here. I've proven I belong here. And what's the worst thing that can possibly happen to me any day of the week here? I get dropped. And so I just went out and I had fun. It didn't help that it was 35 degrees and raining at the time, but I mean, I did go out and have fun. I remember that race, yeah, that, that particular race, because I remember coming over the climb. It goes up to Trump Winery Hill. It's like a two and a half minute effort. And you get over the top and it's got this little roller downhill section and a little kicker uphill. And I remember on the downhill section, we had to close our eyes because it was like sleet hitting you in the face. And I remember on the last lap, we came through that. It slowed down a little. We were like six miles from the finish and I was racing with Haymarket. And I looked over at Jared Neaters and I said, is this it? Who's up the road? He goes, no one, this is it. And I said, oh man, I can't think of the guy's name. Bike doctor guy, uh, just a monster on the bike. Um, him and his wife were, or are, they, they don't live here anymore. But I just remember we made the turn and we we're two miles from the finish. And we're sitting back in the back and no one wants to sprint. No, one, we just want to finish. And he just goes, if you're going to make a move, you better make it now. And we all just kind of laugh. And then, you know, like four people sprinted for the finish and the rest of us were just happy to not have hypothermia. Scott Giles. Yes. Yes. Takes a second sometimes, but the mind still works. With all these top level races, you do go in above your head. And I think that there's always going to be an imposter syndrome. No matter how good of a bike racer you are, you will always face that imposter syndrome where you're like, how long is it going to take for everybody around me to figure out that I am just completely winging it? But that last part of Christina's comment was, I think, telling. Don't take it personally. Don't take it personally, both in the Peloton and on your team, because showing up is a victory. For most of us, bike racing is a hobby. Bike racing is a thing that keeps us motivated and gets us out of bed, you know, keeps us healthy, keeps us balanced. But also, it's just something that we like to do. And if you, you know, if you don't take it personally, when you do make a mistake and somebody yells at you or when you do do something within the confines of your team and somebody gets upset with you, you know, you have to all realize that you've come to this sport, you've come to this venue, you've come to this event because this is fun for you, you know, and you have to be able to sit back and say, hey, in the heat of the moment, I can get yelled at because I did something stupid. Julian Alaphilippe knows all about that right now, but, you know, let it go. I can only speak in my experiences, right? But professionals have professionalism and you know my first athens twilight i remember like it was yesterday this guy i was towards the back of the field because i wasn't confident i was gapping through the turns and this guy behind me wonderful pistachios racer um they were a quote pro team for a year uh had face tattoos i'm sure some people know who he is looked at me and said go the f home amateur and shouldered me into the barriers and i went to the pit got everything fixed up, jumped back in the race, and he was dropped two laps later. And I, I got dropped a handful of laps after that. But then I remember two years ago being in one of the, the Speed Week races, and you know I attacked for a, a preem or attacked a, you know the Rock Hill Crit course. I don't even know what I was going for, but I think it was just I was near the front. I was like, sweet, I'm going to get off the front. And uh, I got caught, and I was drifting backwards up the little climb. And 
one of the hand cappy guys like throws a hand on my back and kind of gives me a nice gentle shove. And I was like, don't worry, dude. And I was like, I think it's twofold. Again, professionals show professionalism and you know, no, there's no animosity there, especially if you show confidence. We need to talk about something that I've never really thought terribly much about in the confines of a race, but I definitely do think it a lot about when I go out and train. And this comment comes to us from Kristen Arnold, coach and nutritionist for Source Endurance. I would have wanted to know the hairdryer effect that happens in a lot of the hot races. Go through from zero to 25 miles an hour and instantly you feel like your eyes are going to get glued shut and your mouth just got pummeled with a large amount of sand. And knowing to wear lip gloss and have good drink mix and have put eye drops in before the Boise criterium, some of the hotter crits would have been super helpful. Hugely helpful advice. Obviously, coming from from Kristen, she's got to toss in a little bit of nutrition about having the proper drink mix. Frank, how you've raced more out west than I have. Now, when you're here on the East Coast, humidity is a thing and, you know, your eyes are going to stay hydrated because of the humidity out. But in Boise, you know, or in Boise, excuse me, I've got to get my pronunciation dialed in, you know, or in Phoenix, uh, you know, West Texas, these kind of places, they're they're dry. You got to think about these things. Yeah, you know, I um I wear glasses usually and I wear contacts and when I ride my bike and race my bike and yeah being a forever virginian now dc person dci dcn washingtonian washingtonian thank you the the only things you have to worry about here are make sure you have cold water and make sure you have an ice sock and make sure you have a spare jersey to change out of after your warm-up because that one's already soaked through going out and doing races like el paso those dry upper elevation races I, I couldn't agree with Kristen more. And I think another one is um, wear glasses, like sunglasses, clear lens, yellow lens, dark lens, whatever the environment calls for. But here in the mid-Atlantic for a twilight race, it doesn't hurt to wear no glasses. Your eyes aren't going to dry out. Your contacts aren't going to fly out of your head usually. Out there, they will. And I think it's really important if you're coming from a humid environment to an arid environment. Because like, when I've traveled for work to Boulder or to Phoenix, Scottsdale, you know, even sometimes to Southern California, when you get a little bit away from the ocean, you know, I'm living on moisturizer. I am living on not lip gloss. Of course, I'm blanking on the name chapstick. I'm living on that stuff. Anybody who's seen a picture of me, I ride with these massive wind jacket. You know, they're basically uh, spring season. Uh, skiing goggles that Oakley makes. Rob, the high school term for those is ugly hiders. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that's appropriate. But I'm beautiful on the inside. And my mom tells me that. So, you know, I but I wear them in the winter, especially because my eyes dry out really badly. And having that big goggle on my face is key to keeping that cold wind out. I think the bigger picture here point that Kristen is trying to make is that you need to think about where you're going. You need to think about what it's going to be like when you get there. 
and bring what you need with you in order to succeed? The keys to doing well in a bike race, whether it's a crit, a road race, particularly a time trial even, are knowing the weather, knowing what's how to dress, knowing how to prepare for it with nutrition, as Kristen said, knowing the course, knowing how many turns, knowing the elevation, going and pre-riding it. It's all in, pre- in the preparation. Success is in the preparation. And if you don't adequate, pre- adequately prepare for a race, you're, you're not going to do well for it. A lot of us are lucky if we live like on the East Coast or we live in a major urban or area filled with a lot of towns, we don't necessarily have to travel quite so far to get to that race. But when you go to the bigger stage, you know, you do have to travel. You do have to start thinking about how do I get from point A to point B? Because Littleton and Boise and St. Louis and Winston-Salem and Athens are all relatively spread out. So we've got a comment here that I think is going to help bring that point home. My name is Cesar Gallego, and I ride for Butcher Box Cycling. I wish they would have told me I'd be driving across the country all the time. Currently on my way to Colorado Springs. I wish they would have told me I would unpack and pack my bike 50 times a year. We know the pain of having to pack and unpack a bike a whole bunch of times. You know, a lot of us will use an Oreo case, the Airport Ninja, to help make sure that we mitigate against cost because it's designed just perfectly to be within that linear inch mark. But I think the most ironic part about that clip is that Cesar sent it to us while driving on his way. So clearly it was something that was on his mind. Frank, you've traveled a lot more than I have to bike races. Uh, You seem to love being in the car. I personally don't. Maybe it's too much time spent in my own head. What are some of the biggest nightmares that you've experienced with travel? So I'll say I I prefer driving to races. If my rule now is if they're under 12 hours, I'll move in multi-day. I'll move. I'll regularly drive to those just because I can bring my stuff. There's nothing worse than getting to an event or getting to a race weekend, flying in, going to unpack your bike and realize you forgot a pedal wrench or realize you forgot your Allen keys or a tool you need that's needed to put your bike together. Um, or you forgot a helmet or shoes and it, and it's all things which happen. You know, one of my worst nightmares is and it. I think it's happened to everyone that's flown with a bicycle is the airline losing your bike, particularly if you're going to a race weekend. Um, you can always get a, a neutral bike, but uh, I mean, it's not your bike, right? You know, when you're going to these big races, when you're flying into Salt Lake City, when you're flying into Boise, when you're flying into whichever big bike race you're going to, you're already a little nervous. You're already a little stressed out. It's a big weekend. It's hectic. Losing a bike, having the airline lose your bicycle and be like, yeah, we'll get it to you when we can, or we'll get it tomorrow, two hours before the start of your race. It should show up. You know, that's just a, an, an added level of stress that does not help. One thing that I do like about travel is that you can get into a mindset that this is the reason you're going to this location. It allows you to sit back and to think and go, okay, I'm coming here to bike race. I am not sleeping in my own bed tonight. I'm here for a specific reason so I can focus in on it. But another thing is if you've got good travel partners, it makes all the difference. When you go to Gateway, 
and you're around people that you don't necessarily know because you're not from St. Louis, this is an ideal time for you to make friends. And you can meet people that you never would have met before. And all of a sudden you've got a travel buddy who's going to go to Ted Drew's with you and get some, get some ice cream after the race. Or, you know, you, you go down to Athens and all of a sudden you're surrounded by Tom Gibbons and all of his friends. And now you got to know what the best bar is to go and get the best drinks after the race. What I would say to people who struggle to find travel buddies who, you know, their team doesn't travel, but they want to go travel to big races, reach out to your local associations. Throw something up on the on the Mabra or the Virginia Cycling or the Nebra listserv and say, hey, I'm planning on going to this race. Is anyone else? Let's carpool for Gateway Cup a couple years ago. You know, we have our our Haynes Point Noon Ride Fight Club ride that is is always great. And uh, Nick Latham uh, reached out to me and said, hey, I want to go to Gateway Cup. Are you going? And I said, yeah. He's like, let's let's carpool. I didn't know Nick, but it ended up being a great weekend. Um, we ended up actually... We got a flat at one in the morning and did seven hours on a donut in my Honda Element through the mountains of Appalachia heading to St. It was actually, it ended up being a, a pretty insane adventure. But no, it was it, like, that's reach out to, you know, that's that's the thing, right? We're all bike racers. We all want to race. We all want to have fun. And, and if you do post something out there about, hey, I want to go do this big race and looking for someone else, you might get someone who's on the fence about doing it. like. Oh, but yeah, I'm down. I got someone to go with. Let's go. So one thing that you alluded to early on when you were talking about your own personal experience is about getting to the race early. How early before a race do you typically get to one? So when I started racing uh, all the way up to Cat 2 and part of my, well, I'm still a Cat 2, so even part of my Cat 2, first couple of years of it, I raced with Dan Netzer. You don't know Dan, you should know Dan. Local racer in Norfolk got me into bike racing. Dan was very calculated, is very calculated about everything. Our rule for races was you show up two hours before the start of your race. That's the firm rule. Our race is at 1 p.m. We will be there at 11 a.m. And and if we have free time there, you know, you can take your time to get ready, whatever. I, I, I find setting that two-hour benchmark safe. It's like what Natalia Franco from Team 2020 wrote us. What they won't tell you is that the big teams are going to try to get rid of all the weakest by setting a really hard pace at the beginning, but settling into a more manageable pace when that is achieved. Sometimes that period of time can be longer than expected and negative thoughts start to pop in your head. And the key is having the physical and mental strength to acknowledge that the climax is going to be over soon. So you push to overcome it. And then it can be a piece of cake. I think we also have something here from Whitney Allison of Bike Sports in, in Colorado about the race to the race. Let's not forget the race to the race, a.k.a. lining up early. There's generally two reasons for this. One, some courses require a lot of effort to move up on. You might already have your work cut out for you or an early job, so you need to get a good starting position. Two, some races have a high number of regional riders that you're unfamiliar with. When you see the same circus traveling around the country and then add a couple dozen unfamiliar faces, it can result in a sketchier race, especially at the beginning and end. The token event for this is always Blue Dome at Tulsa Tough. Doesn't matter how hot it is, you'll for sure be there lined up early unless you're getting a call up. For me, that's Wilmington Grand Prix. I think I'm actually already starting to get 
lined up for the 2021 version of that race. What's it for you? So I'll say Wilmington Grand Prix. I've been lucky enough to have a call up the last couple of years. So it is now Wilmington uh, Clarity Cup Armed Forces. Um, I've been lucky enough to, I'll call it the David Guten plan move, which is the sneak around the stage and back into the front row once or twice. But it's also, uh, you know, again, lining up earlier and lining up on the correct side of the road is another particular one there. If a hundred of the 150 people are lining up on the right side, waiting to get in and you see there's an entrance on the left side and there's only 20 over there, but it's the inside of the course. It's hard to get to take that extra two minutes to get over there. That's, that's going to pay dividends. I just actually switched over to speed plays. I had had the, uh, you know, Shimano look style. So I switched over because I was dead. I've been deathly afraid of missing pedals. And there's been lots of races where I've missed a pedal right there at the beginning. And like, I'll talk to a coach about it and he'll be like, it shouldn't be an issue. Don't really worry about it. But you know, when you get that thought in your head, then you fixate on it. You're like, no, this is my biggest issue. So to mitigate away from that, I've switched over to speed play. And again, Dan Netzer coming in with a hot suggestion there. Absolutely love it. Now I'm going to have to find something new to fixate about. I got a bike fit at Velo Concepts during Culpeper, Virginia. Joe Coppola, great guy, 3D fit. It's amazing. Uh, completely fixed all my discomfort, but switched pedals. I went from speed plays to time. And I did three real life races before COVID this year. And one of them was a crit. Sorry, two of them were a crit. The first crit was my first race on these pedals and I've never missed a pedal worse in my life to where Dan, Dan Netzer again came by me and goes, what are you doing amateur? And, <laughs> and I went from front row to 30th wheel immediately. And I, I, all I could, all I could utter out just literally like screaming it to the pedals. I was, I'm sorry, they're new pedals. <laughs> Probably my most embarrassing moment this year. We're going to move on quickly from that one to talk about that second section. So we're, we're done about getting to the race because obviously we're at the start line. This is some next level stuff here from Eric Hill of Project Echelon. This tells you more about Eric as a person than it, than it does really about anything about how cerebral his focus is. So Eric wrote us and said, coming from the world of collegiate running, I found success early on applying running tactics to cycling. To win and beat your opponent, you simply need to go harder, faster, longer than they are willing to go. The simple recipe worked wonders in local crits and group rides. As I progressed through the ranks, it quickly became apparent that cycling was a sport of chess. It is only when you execute the right move at the right time that your raw power and speed come into play. At the top end of the sport, your mental fitness is just as important as your physical fitness. Every race presents unique challenges, and rarely does everything go right and to plan. Your ability to overcome, refocus, and adapt to what is happening around you is essential. The amount of communication, acting and reacting, and sheer focus that criteriums at the top level require that criteriums at the top level require is insane. I don't think that anybody can disagree with that especially as you get to those bigger, bigger races where fitness is even across the board, you know, it's the little things and those little things add up a lot. And it's the ability to think strategically. And for a lot of us, 
we get in so deep over our head because we stop thinking and we just start reacting to what's happening around you rather than saying, okay, nothing's going to change in the next half a second. Let me pause and process that. I've mentioned this before, right? When I was with Living Law Group, we had Adam Meyerson come aboard, uh, guest writing for Speed Week. And, you know, Adam's been at this longer than I've been alive. Uh, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. And he's one of the most level-headed people I've ever talked with. And when you talk to him about bike racing, even in a race, we're in Athens twilight and he's floated back 50 spots and, hey, Frank, how you doing? I'm, I'm great. All right. Well, why are you pedaling right here? What? Don't pedal. You don't have to. Oh, don't go around that guy. Don't. You're going to have to touch brakes. And it's just the amount that comes to him and what goes through his head with every single position he is in and every single turn and every single straightaway is, what's the field doing? What's this guy in front of me doing? What's the guy, five guys in front of him doing? What's this gap? Oh, what the guy behind me is going to come around me and check up on the brakes. I'm going to have to go around him. And it's just the... I agree with Eric 100%. It's um, the physical fitness side of it's only 40%, if that, you know, maybe 50%, I guess. But like knowing how to how to race your bicycle, the the mental side of bike racing, particularly in a top level crit, it's it's paramount. If you if you cannot think in the red, if you cannot execute critical skills at 30 miles an hour while your heart rate is in zone four or zone five. Um, you're you're not gonna be successful. What is the most useless phrase uttered in Criterium Racings from the fans? I'm not allowed to utter this phrase anymore, and I have a small story about it. But let's move up. I was helping Mellow Mushroom at Gateway Cup one year. Courtney Lowe, and if I I don't know who here knows who Courtney Lowe is, phenomenal bike racer, not a fan of crits. And she was kind of hanging around towards the back of the pack in one of the races, and and they had shelled a large portion of the field. So I'm on the side of the road yelling at them, trying to give them updates. And I didn't know how to relate to her that she was at the back because everyone was dropped. And so as she came by, I yelled, Courtney, move up. And then 90 seconds later, when they came through, Courtney, in her adorable Kiwi voice, yelled f off frank and i told her i would never say move up to her ever again or to anyone there's somebody here who's got a comment that's gonna echo that hey rob so this is tina pick everyone's always yelling from the side like move up they don't say how and the the problem is like you do you're like pedaling and pedaling and going through all these corners and you're you're looking at the person next to you and then like five minutes later, after furiously pedaling and thinking you're moving somewhere, you look next to you again and it's the same person and you haven't gone anywhere. So I finally figured out that in criteriums, there's usually one place to move up and it's not where you'd necessarily think, for instance, and throughout like the Redlands crit, everyone thinks, oh, well, the one straightaway where there's not turns would be the start finish line. But the problem is that's what where everyone tries to move up. So there you are scrambling madly trying to move up on the false flat uphill through the start finish stretch and everybody else is too. So you actually go nowhere. So the thing to do is to figure out where in the course, and sometimes it takes me a couple laps to figure it out is the easiest and best place to move up where 
you have enough room to slide by the side or it's possibly a little bit downhill so you actually don't have to use a whole lot of effort to get there. So I want to point out one thing about that clip from Tina. Tina is so amazingly intelligent, but she's also committed. She's committed to practicing the safest social distancing possible. When she left that message, she was wearing a mask. And and chapeau to her and all those people who are continuing to social distance and wear masks so that we can beat this. Tina's comment comes really close to what Evan Hardig of Project Echelon says, which is to pay attention to the way that the Peloton moves. There is a predictable pattern that you can detect lap to lap. Use the course to your advantage. Pay attention to where things slow down, where they accelerate. We get into this race. The adrenaline gets rushed. We we get very aggressive with our decision-making. And I think the points that you've made about Meyerson are, are accurate because Evan even cites Meyerson in, in some of his comments to us about being more of a Jedi about it, being more of a Buddhist monk about it, where you need to think about why you're about to do these things, why you're about to make this move. Steven Vogel, also Project Echelon, you know, has a very solid point that that you and I need to talk about is that he wish he would have known how real the metaphor of burning matches were was. At a PRT race, suddenly every pedal stroke, position change, draft choice mattered. There was no more riding in the wind or muscling a few spots up for the sake of it. I either calculated my energy expenditure, risk reward well, or I was done. There is a confidence you need to chill out and feel the race instead of fight it. You read the race more through instinct than you do intellect because things happen so fast and under such physical duress. We get so excited to do something that sometimes doing nothing or waiting a hot second might actually be the best plan. The problem I have personally is when I get into a race, and if it's just me solo, I'll have my plan. I'll go through it in my head. This is how it's going to play out. This is who I need to watch. The first move goes up the road and gets six seconds, and I will be that one attacking out of the field, bridging up to it, burning those matches that Vogel helpfully pointed out you have a finite amount of. Because I get in my own head, and, and I'm not thinking, I'm not chess matching it, right? I'm There's the macro and micro. The macro being that you have to you have to be chill about the overall race and understand what the plan is overall. But the micro is every single move, not thinking about what that move will accomplish in in the immediate. But once you do that move, what do you accomplish two turns later? What do, Where does that put you a lap later? What happens after you make that move? I'm going to pass these two people on the outside. Next thing you know, you have to touch brakes and you lose three spots and you know two steps forward, three steps back. The fun thing about these big crits is that the margin for error is so small for a lot of us, especially for people who are coming to the race for the first time or are less experienced. You know, Adam Meyerson's margin for error is massive because he's so smart that he can figure out what to do. Lily Williams's margin for error is, is beyond excessively large just because she's so strong that she can, you know, obliterate it. But for those mere mortals uh, of us, our margin for error is small. So you do have to 
think about what you're going to do. You, you really do have to do your homework. You have to do your homework, not just before you get there, but in those first couple of laps, like what Tina said, you could go to the same race 15 years in a row and it may not play out ever the same way. No. And I think that's the other side of it, right? It's yeah, you have your plan and you know how you think the race will go and how you want to race that race, but you can't just have your plan. You know, it's a choose your own adventure book uh, plan. It's here's my plan. But if this happens, I plan on doing this. If this happens, I plan on doing this. And, and so you kind of spread it out to try to tackle as many scenarios as you, as you can think of. We're driving here towards the end of the race. But we've got to take a pit stop here to talk a little bit about bike handling, because obviously good bike drivers can get themselves out of problems and your ability to maneuver within the field is so critical. So we're going to turn to, you know, somebody who was just recently in the U23 ranks to see what he has to say. So we got Tyler Reynolds here from uh, First Internet Bank and his comments about bike handling and taking risks. Leaning and being more physical on the bike, such as leaning into a corner and you're constantly rubbing elbows, leaning on people, you take them out to the curb, you to the gate, whatever it is, you, you shoot gaps. There's a huge difference between the pro ranks, such as the D1 crits, and more a pro local race. Uh, locally, usually that's gonna be a smaller field and people, it's kind of like an un, unwritten rule or even a, an agreement where there is not as much of aggressive racing, there is not as much of the pushing, shoving, taking each other to the curb, at least in my experience of my local races. But once you get to a D1 crit, that is a necessity. That is a huge tactic that everybody uses, and you honestly need to know how to handle it and use that uh, tactic yourself. A lot of times it can be whoever is top three coming to that last corner. And to be in that position, you have to be willing to shoot gaps, you have to be willing to take people to the gate. Uh, it also depends on if you have a lead out in front of you. Uh, if you do have people in front of you, you have to be able to uh, push and shove to hold that wheel. People will come up on you and chop you. Owning your own space within the field. Obviously, we've talked about how so much of bike racing is collaborative, but when it comes down to the pointy end of the race, when it comes down to the points in time that it matters, you do have to own your space. It's just like defensive driving. You, in a bigger race, and even in some local ones, right, you can't be afraid of rubbing shoulders or, you know, touching someone on the hip at 30 miles an hour to let them know you're on, you know, on that side, particularly if it's a newer rider who who is a little sketched out. You have to be physical on the bike. And being physical on the bike results in a safer race. Accidents don't result from people touching each other. They don't result from going shoulder to shoulder. They don't result from someone putting a hand on someone's hip. Accidents or crashes occur from the reactions of those instances, overreactions. It's it's when you do go shoulder to shoulder and that person you go shoulder to shoulder with chops his wheel right really hard because, oh my God, I'm touching somebody. And now he's crashed into the, the person to his other side. And, and again, Dan Netzer needs to autograph this podcast episode. But, you know, one of the things coming up with him, you know, we had a, a club of 50-something riders. Him and I were the only Cat 2s or higher on the team. A lot of it was Masters racers. And every Monday was a recovery day. And Dan and I in the following winter in spring would go out and do handling drills. Figure eights in a parking space, picking up tennis balls, 
bumping in a field and just for an hour, that's what we did. And we would invite the club out to it. And time after time, you would hear 40 plus cat three masters racer go, I know how to handle my bike. I don't, I don't need that. I don't need to practice that. And you can never learn enough, right? There's no end to learning how to handle your bike. The more you practice it, the better you become at it and the safer of a racer you become. So we're here at the end getting ready for the sprint and your teammate, Ricky Arnopel has a, a great comment. There's a trend I see when watching beginners, intermediate, and even cat one, two racers at the local and regional level. Almost 95% of the field is reactive instead of proactive. Everyone is always waiting or for something to happen instead of making it happen themselves. You can't start the break or make the break from the middle of the pack. You won't do well in a sprint unless you use the energy three laps prior to be in the right spot. What I'm taking from this is know yourself, know your skill set, know what you need to do in order to bring that race home the way that you want it to be brought home. You know, we've talked about Jared Neaters before. Obviously, he was a team captain for both of us when we were on Haymarket. My first go around at USA Cycling Masters Nationals in the crit, the field had whittled down to just a few people. Jared and I were and maybe 20 other guys were there and he looked at me and he goes, do you want this race to end in a sprint? And I, 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 I was out of breath. I could barely say anything, but obviously the answer was no, because 19 times out of 20, if the field ends in a sprint, I'm not going to win. So he's like, you've got to get up the road and you've got to do something. You've got to make this race your own. And I think a lot of people race reactively for the, you know, for the Harriet Owens or the Justin Williams of the world to take advantage of them rather than trying to take the advantage to them. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I had a coach, uh, Nathaniel Ward. He told me, you know, I was at Dairyland and we were trying to, I was just not in a good headspace and racing like garbage. You know, I was like, every day's finishing in a field sprint. I'm not a sprinter. This is stupid. He highlighted something. He said, you know what? It's a crit. 90% of crits, you don't have to be a sprinter to win that race. It's all 90% of those crits, it is first person out of the last turn is going to win that race. Whether you're a sprinter or not, if you are in the top five, you're going to finish in the top five most likely. There's There's some, you know, give and take there, but you have to commit to getting into the winning position to get a chance at winning 90% of the time. It, it's not going to work, right? Like that's why it's bike racing and I'm bike winning. If you, if you don't ever take the chance, you're never going to win. Can we put that on a t-shirt? It's called bike racing, not bike winning. I'm a big fisherman. You know, it's, that's why it's called fishing, not catching. <laughs> but I think that you've got a, you've absolutely got a point there. Putting yourself in a position to win means you're willing to lose. If you're not willing to lose, then you're just going to end up being 25th place. So after the race is over, you know, after we are done with our event, happy, sad, whatever it happens to be, and you want to get better, you want to figure out a way to make yourself a better bike racer, you want to make yourself a better part of the community, Kristen Lasso from Team Colavita has this great comment to bring us home. To find an experienced rider to mentor you, um, we might seem fierce and intimidating while racing, 
but really do love helping out um, the new riders to grow and better themselves. So really at the next, your next race, um, take the leap and just introduce yourself and you might be shocked to see uh, the response you get. So this year, the only race that I did was Murrieta, the Criterium. And I took that shot. I had never, I'd emailed them a bunch of times and, you know, we had talked electronically, but I had never met Justin Williams. He happened to be there and, you know, it was a great opportunity for me to just go up, stick my hand in his, in his face and say, hi, this was back when you could get close to each other. And it turns out he's just an awesome dude. Just straight up an awesome dude. And I never would have known that if I did not listen to Kristen's advice. There's a, and, and I actually, if, if this makes the recording, I'm going to send it to him. I was in a local race with Jake King. Uh, ben King's younger brother. He was on Hot Tubes. He was on Hinkapi. Phenomenal bike racer. Just again, the entire family is a raw talent, right? But we were in a we were in a race, and I, there was a break up the road, and he was sixteen, maybe. And I'm just I've got a teammate in the break. I'm just kind of sitting fifth or sixth wheel, and him and some friends or, or teammates are rotating at the front to bring it back. And he looks back at me. He goes are you going to help pull this back? And I said, I can't, Jake, I got a teammate up the road. And he goes, then get the F out of here. And after the race, he came up to me. I was like, Hey, Mr. Cundiff, I really want to apologize for cursing. Uh, you know, my, my dad says, you know, feelings get the best of us during bike races. And I told him it's right. It's bike racing. The, the whole summary of that is everyone's, everyone's blood's running, you know, is boiling and, and everyone's hot to trot and, and, you know, emotions run high in a bike race and, and it's important. And I'll say to Kristen's point, it's always great to, to go up and shake hands and congratulate people after the race and talk with them. And, and also if you did make a, a cross remark, right, go up and apologize after, Hey, you know, Hey, heat of the moment. I apologize. I didn't, I didn't mean to call you that name. And, and 99% of the time it's, yeah, we've all been there. Right it goes a really long way, not only to get your name out there and get you familiar with those riders and those riders familiar with you, which actually helps you in the further in races down the road because they'll recognize you, but also it just shows you're a good human being. And, and that goes so much further than being a great bike racer. Well, Frank, I don't think we can wrap it up any better than that. Thank you so much for helping break this down. Yeah, no, this is, I, I'm glad we had this podcast. I think this, there's a lot of good information in here. A lot of people could take in and, and learn from, myself included. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Criterium Nation, a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. Today's show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly, and was co-hosted by Frank Cundiff. A special thank you to all of the pros who gathered together and gave advice and sent us clips and wrote us messages. It was absolutely wonderful to hear from all of them, and we are so appreciative of it. Please do follow us on Twitter or on Instagram at Criterium Nation. And your home for the best in Criterium Racing is CriteriumNation.com. Please join us here again soon for more stories from our Criterium Nation.
Wide Angle Podium friends. Join me, longtime cyclocross writer Molly Herford, and me, endurance coach Peter Glassford, on the Consummate Athlete Podcast. You'll learn about how the pros like Katarina Nash, Ellen Noble, and Magalie Rochette train. And hear the best advice from experts in exercise science, nutrition, and sports psych to crush your racing goals. We discuss topics like how to run for cyclocross training, if strength training will improve your cycling, how NASCAR can teach you how to corner smoother, and how to fuel for a long day at the races. Come hang out and learn how to live a happy, adventurous life. Subscribe to the Consummate Athlete Podcast and visit us online at consummateathlete.com.